Hello, everyone, and welcome to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of But I Digress. And today we're going to be digressing with Alice LaPlante, um, who is an award-winning writer, an editor, um, and a teacher of writing, both fiction and nonfiction. She was a Wallace Stegner Fellow and Jones Lecturer at Stanford University, has taught creative writing at both Stanford and San Francisco State's MFA program for more than 20 years. She's a New York Times bestselling author, who's published four novels and five nonfiction books, including the LA Times bestseller, Method and Madness, The Making of a Story, which was published by Norton in 2009. And I just learned from Alice that um, she has a couple of new textbooks coming out next year. Um, I myself found um, Method and Madness to be really, really helpful. So um, I, I'm excited to know that more is coming. Um, and Alice's novel, Turn of Mind, won the Welcome Trust Book Prize for 2011 and was a New York Times bestseller and was an, an amazing read. Um, and um, Alice also, and I think this is really interesting and we'll get into this during our conversation, Alice also consults with Silicon Valley firms like Google and Salesforce and HP and Cisco on their content marketing strategies. And she can talk all about digital transformation and big data and the internet of things, but we won't talk about that today, um, at least not much. Um, Alice lives with her family in Mallorca. And um, so welcome. Glad to be here, Michael. Thanks so much for being with us. And by the way, so I, I want to start with Mallorca. Um, you live in Mallorca. I've lived abroad, um, but I'm back in the United States now. Um, and when I lived abroad, it was a whole other era. Talk to us about you know, why do you live in Mallorca? What are the benefits and challenges of being an expat in terms of obviously lifestyle, but also how does that impact your ability to sell books to agents and publishers? And you know, how do you do readings and how do you do press interviews, I guess, through Zoom? But um, yeah, why are you in Mallorca? How is that working out? Well, it's working out great. Uh, we, we came here seven years ago. Yeah, seven years ago, um, mostly because of my husband. He retired early and he said to me, United States is no place to grow old in. He's from Britain. And I sort of agreed politically. And um, so we started looking around for a place to live. And we settled on Mallorca and um, moved here seven years ago. And it's it's been wonderful, but it, it, you know, it is weird being an expat. I miss hearing English as I walk down the street. I would like to be able to communicate more easily because my Spanish is not very good, um, but I'm going to change that. And um, as far as being a writer here, it's, it's actually really, really great. I've never been the kind of writer who kind of hobnobs with who's ever in at the moment or being a part of a writer community. I have writer friends, but that's different. So I've always written on my own and I've always had my friends read my stuff, but I've always been a little independent. And so that hasn't changed anything since being in my work. I still have my agent. I still have my publishers. Um, 
we still communicate regularly and I've sold books from here. So it's just not been a problem. Do you ever feel, and I mean, you know, seven years is, I don't know, it's not negligible, but it's also not an enormous amount of time. And there is the internet and, you know, I guess greater avail availability of electronic means of start kind of staying in touch with the, with, with the culture. But, you know, my experience having been away from the United States for 12 years, and I would go back every year, at least for, you know, a couple of weeks, um, but still living abroad uh, for 12 years, I got the sense that um, I was getting more and more alienated from my own culture. And I came to feel something that I don't think that I would have ever said had I not left, which is that I'm an American writer. Um, and I'm not even sure what that means other than that I feel like, um, I guess you, you write in, one writes in a literary context, um, I, I guess, unless one is Homer. <laughs> um, I don't know, I mean, I guess there are those that sort of are so universal, um, but I feel like uh, most of us write within a particular context and I wonder how you feel about a the, the idea of writing within a particular literary context, and then, you know, do you feel that you're connected to that context? Yeah, um, I don't feel like I'm alienated some from America so much as America is getting alienated from me. I I haven't liked a lot of the stuff that's been going on there, but we don't need to get into politics. It's better now, of course, with you know who gone, but <laughs> it's. It's still, I, I think I approve more of the philosophy of life here in Europe. That said, I really feel like I'm an American. I have a writer's group here um, on the island where we meet every week and we share our work and everyone is English speaking. It's not a Spanish group, it's an English speaking group. Um, and there are two Americans among the group of nine. and. Um, I have to work hard to not make it too American centric because I have to remember I'm dealing with British people and Canadian people and South African people and people who've lived all over the world. So we, our work has a very international flair to it, but my work is American. I'm very grounded. I don't know that I could ever write a piece grounded here in Mallorca, for example. I think it'll always be where I've lived because that's how I ground my work in Chicago or San Francisco or you know maybe a little bit in New Jersey, Philadelphia area. But um, yeah, I'm American. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in a way, um, you kind of remind me of. Uh, um, both in terms of some of your subject matter and in terms of somewhat your situation, uh, Patricia Highsmith, um, hmm. you know, who also wrote uh, uh, mysteries, or not mysteries so much as psychological yeah. dramas, um, and um, who also, but she she had, I mean, her, so she wrote a lot more than just the Ripley books, but the Ripley books were all set in Europe um, with an American character who is 
you know, a fish out of water in many ways, but, you know, fits in so well, but that's part of his psychosis too, right? Is that he, right, he fits right. in, in a very, very uh, creepy way. Um, I always felt my, um, that, uh, well, I didn't always feel, I, I, I felt gradually that, um, you know, my, um, my sense of, um, my audience was changed, was, 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 was slipping. You know, I mean, I feel like, mm. you know, you're writing for, well, I felt, you know, I'm an American writer, I'm writing for an American audience, and I'm not sure I understand my audience anymore. Uh, mm. And I also left at a time when I was not happy with the politics in this country. Um, it was the Reagan era. Um, I don't think I left because of that, but I certainly had that. Um, it was, it was funny because um, I found myself constantly defending America um, while at the same time not defending the um, current political occupant of the White House, right? Uh, it's kind of a very strange position to be in. Yeah. Um, so, but you have, as I noted in the intro, um, You've been a best-selling writer, mm -hmm. um, but you also do all this corporate work. Um, now, assuming that you're not, uh, you know, inveterate gambler who's um, frittering <laughs> your enormous uh, uh, gains away on cards of uh, games of chance, um, you know, I think most people would have the sense, oh, well, you've you've had a bestseller, you can quit your day job, so to speak. Um, why is that not the case? Well, the economics, I think, are a little different than people imagine. Um, if you're at the top of the bestseller list for months, yeah, you're going to make millions and you'll do okay. But I was middle in the bestseller list, and I think I lasted a couple weeks. So that makes me a New York Times bestseller, which makes me very happy. But um, <clears throat> And I got a really generous advance for that book and for the next couple books. So... I actually did do okay financially, but we used a lot of the money to buy our house in Mallorca because back then we had just decided where we were going to move. So that happened. And also I was living in the San Francisco Bay area. Um, at the time I had just gotten divorced, which I was completely broke. And I had a daughter who was gonna be entering college in a couple of years. So I had a lot and I didn't have anything saved for retirement. So I was in a position where I had to salt a lot of money away to pay just to live in the Bay Area, just to prepare for my daughter's education, which thank God she's now paying for herself <laughs> in her PhD program. Um, and to put some money away for retirement um, because I had been freelancing for so long, I didn't have any sort of um, IRA or anything like that. Um, so the economics, but still I think the economics are not as rosy as people think. A friend of mine who I'm helping with her novel said she's in a writing group where one of the women is saying she can't wait to quit her day job as soon as she start, starts publishing her books. And I said, tell her to wake up and smell the coffee. Just doesn't work that way. Um, most writers I know, except if you're again at the top of the 
bestseller list for months at a time, but have, have a day job either teaching or they have a partner who has a job or they have a trust fund. It's I mean, the, the reality really, is that even if you if you get, and I, I, <laughs> there's a kind of almost ludicrous, except again, it's, I, I mean, I think it's a valid point of discussion, but there's this kind of ludicrous argument going on on Twitter right now about whether $100,000 advance is a lot of money or not. And one of my <laughs> friends um, uh, is like, well, yeah, $100,000 is a lot of money, but that's, you know, if that's all the money you're going to see for a couple of years, then no, it's not a lot of money. Um, and and that's, exactly. you know, the, the, the thing is people don't realize, or I mean, writers do realize this, but it doesn't change. If you, if you get published, it still takes you a couple of years to write a book and get it published. And that's right. Um, and, and in the meantime, what are you doing for money? And then afterwards, I mean, okay, so let's say that you've, you know, as this woman in, the, in, in your friend's writing group says, okay, she gets published and she can quit her day job because she gets, say, a $100,000 advance. Well, you know, how long is that really going to last her? And what's she going to do afterwards? And it's not like you go, oh, I've run out of money. It's not if you're a grown up. I've run out of money. I guess I, gotta go, I have to go get a job now. It's like no. you, you, you either not, don't have to work or you better keep your career going in some way. Exactly. And, you know, a lot of people don't realize that $100,000, you do not get a check for $100,000. When the book is signed, when the contract is signed, you get a fourth of it. When the book is turned in, you get another fourth. When the book is published, you get another fourth and you get your final fourth when the paperback comes out. So it's dribbled out to you. And, um, you know, it's funny you said I didn't realize that the paperback was involved because when I got, you know, my collection of stories published 130 years ago, um, the way that worked was you it was a third, a third, a third. Um, and you were hoping to sell the paperback rights to someone. Um, and sometimes it was your publisher and sometimes it was. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I guess these days it would be probably it, yeah, the vision it, of your publisher, but. It depends on, obviously every contract is different, but it's either a third or a fourth is I, I've had it both ways, but either way you don't get a nice. Right, but it's interesting yeah. that, so uh, <laughs> that song Paperback Writer by the Beatles is so <laughs> um, perfect. It's, it's just, it's a perfect anthem. There's so much in there that is uh, so ironically accurate. Um, and, you know, the, the thing is, because um, he doesn't say I want to be a writer, right? He says I want to be a paperback writer. And it's, it's funny because your book comes out, I mean, my experience of the whole thing is that the hardcover edition is really almost the vanity edition because mm -hmm. who's going to go out and buy uh, a hardcover for you know whatever the, these days were the thirty five forty dollars uh, for 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 a hardcover when you know six months later the paperback's going to come out and it's going to be half the price and also especially if you live in a city or you've got a small library you know it's easier to store your books with their paperbacks um, but um, so the, the paper, you know, sort of the, the, the thing going from a hardcover to a paperback kind of was, is, I don't know, to me is, is a big deal. Um, it's like a, uh, another, you know, hurdle to jump. 
Well, don't forget there's now um, ebooks in the equation. So ebooks are actually cannibalizing the hardcover. Well, there's people who would buy the hardcover in any event, but the people who want the book right away, like there's a couple of books that came out recently that I just had to have. Um, I just went to the ebooks because they're cheaper, they're easy to get. And so you've got this weird situation of ebooks and, and hardcovers come out at the same time, usually, and then a little bit after the paperback. And the economics are just all over the map these days for publishers. It's very difficult for them, I think. Well, I, I mean, I, well, I think it's always been very difficult for publishers. I, I, I'm hopeful that ebooks and audiobooks are, you know, going to help more than, more than cannibalize. Because I mean, yeah. um, I hear people, a lot of people say, oh, you know, it's like audiobooks have reinvigorated my love of reading. I'm like, that, I, don't, I don't know whether I really consider that reading. Um, if you're being well, read someone's to. reading <laughs> right right um when you sit down to write a book do you think about when you're planning do you think who is my audience for this book because that's obviously you know when you look at the books that are out there about finding an agent finding a publisher um there's always the section about how you pitch your book and one of the things that you're supposed to be able to tell agents and publishers is who's your audience. Um, and so at what point do you think about who's your, who's my audience for this? Never. Ever do I think about the audience. I think about getting the best story I can on the page and hoping that someone might be interested in reading it, but I'm not planning on trying to appeal to any particular person. The book I'm writing now, my fifth novel, one of my one of the women in my writing group says, no man is going to read this. Don't you, shouldn't you be considering working about, worrying about your, your audience? And I'm like, I can't write this book any other way. It's a book about, you know, five aging sisters. Um, there's nothing I can do to make the book interesting to men if, if you think that narrowly about what men are interested in. So I just have to write the book I have to write. I mean, look at Lauren Groff with the book she just came out with, Matrix. Um, it's a book about um, 15th century nuns in a convent. There's no man named, much less has a line of dialogue in it. And it's a bestseller. And it's a wonderful book, by the way. So I don't think you can worry about things like that. You have to write the best book you can. And it's funny that you should say that. And I think that, I mean, I agree with you in my heart of hearts. Um, I've never thought about audience either. Um, but um, I have had um, people say to me, you know, um, 65% of readers are women. You have to make your books, you know, um, appealing to women. Um, and I mean, I, you know, I, what can I say? I, um, I like my books to be appealing to humans. Um, yes. I, 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 I've, 
like you, I, I sort of, I, I feel like I write the books that I'm compelled to write, the stories that I'm compelled to tell. Um, and then I hope that someone <laughs> wants to uh, read it. But I think that there are people who are, um, well, I wonder, you know, the, the, the market seems to believe that there are people who are very intentional about this. And I wonder whether that's the case or not. Um, but clearly I you think, are not in that camp. No, I'm not in that camp. But um, there are people with a commercial mindset who, and some of them I suspect do very well. It's just not me. Um, I had a couple of my colleagues in the Stegner program who are a couple years ahead of me um, tried to deliberately write bad best-selling fiction. Tried to deliberately write a book <clears throat> that was terrible writing, but which would appeal to the masses. And they lost a couple years of their lives trying to do this. And they came up with something that didn't sell. So I don't know how good we are at predicting audience. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that we are, I think the publishers are terrible at it. Otherwise um, they wouldn't have spent at least my entire lifetime complaining about how the, the, the business is going down the tubes. And I mean, this isn't like a, a new thing, as I'm sure you know. Publishers have been complaining about how bad the publishing business is, you know, since, you know, the golden era of publishing. So um, I just don't know that it's a, you know, the, you know, the thing is, it's, it, it has to be a business, right? Otherwise, no one would do, no one would do it. But it's, it's, it's yeah. a terrible business because, yeah. um, you know, you can't focus group it ahead of time. No. Now you've been published, and some would say you're lucky. Um, you've been published by, you know, really you, uh, members of the big, however many there were left of the U.S. publishing conglomerates. But um, do you feel well served um, by that, or do you feel um, that you might be getting more, uh, you know, care and feeding from the smaller presses. Um, have you ever, you know, have you ever thought about being published by the smaller presses? What's your, what's your sense of, of that? Uh, um, I've, I've had nothing but good experiences and I know other people haven't, but I've, I've worked with Grove Atlantic, um, Scribner's and Norton are my three edit, three publishers, and they've all been just fabulous. I've, I've loved my my editors. Um, they've just had nothing but good advice and no bullying to make me do things I didn't want to do to the text. And um, what you always want, of course, the publicist to do more for you. That's a given, but um, they really, all three of them did, did wonderful jobs with my books. So I, I have nothing to complain about. Now, my agent is always telling me, if anyone ever asks you what your publishing experience is like, you have to tell them that you are one in a million. <laughs> she says, it's been too easy for you, Alice. <laughs> um, and so I gather that for other people, it hasn't been easy, but for me, it's been very easy. Well, I mean, I have to say there are, you know, there are people um, 
who have complained about um, not being um, treated the way they were hoping they would be treated by the big publishers. But I've, I've actually heard more people have good experiences. Of course, you know, um, maybe it's a small sample size, um, but I think it depends so much on, on, on what your expectations are, like yeah. anything else, right? Um, if, um, you know, someone throws me a crumb, I'm thrilled. Um, but, you know, maybe someone was expecting the filet mignon. Well, you know, um, I, I was quite happy with the burger. Um, I, so backtracking a minute, and you've got, you're working on a novel. You've got a couple of textbooks that are coming out in January. Um, but you also continue to do your corporate work. Um, and I guess the question is, how do, you, how do you organize yourself so that you can, you know, and you've got your writing groups, you've got your family, um, you've got uh, your writing and you've got the corporate work. How do you, how do you make it all work or, or, or is sleep not an option? Yeah, that, that's actually something I'm working on in my personal life is how do I make this work so I don't drive myself and my family crazy. So I do my creative writing first thing in the morning when I get up because that's when I'm best. And then I turn to my corporate work, um, usually after lunch. But it doesn't leave a lot of time in the day for fun. And um, so, yeah, that's something I'm, work-life balance, I'm struggling with it. I think, I think a lot of writers do, unless they're very, very lucky. But you, so you, you like to, to get up and do it in the morning. You're not a night owl. Oh, no, not at all. Um, yeah. And, you know, poking around, um, I mean, you and I, um, you know, we've, we've spoken on the phone before. Um, we've emailed each other. Um, I'm not sure if we're connected to any social media, but um, looking around, it didn't seem to me that you're active on social media. Is that <laughs> is that true? That's very true. I hate social media, so you won't find me on LinkedIn or tweeting or or Facebook or anything. And I won't do it for publicity. And I, it, that's frustrated my publishers a little bit. But I will not waste my time. I have so little time. I will not waste it in that. And it's funny that you 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 do say that um, you're. It frustrates your publishers a little bit because that is again something I've seen a lot of agents even now look for like do you have a social media presence or a following um, do you have quote unquote a platform um, yes the platform yeah I think for for new writers I think they they are asking for that I'm lucky I slipped in the door right before it closed where you could still not have that. And I think I've, I've got enough of a track record now that I don't have to worry too much about it. Do you think that you have an audience of fans that, um, you know, uh, will buy your next book because they like the previous ones? Or, um, or do you think that every time is just a whole new fishing expedition? Hmm. 
Well, you know, the, the press kind of labeled me as the quirky, um, what did they call me? The, the quirky literary thriller writer. And I really, really, really want to get away from that. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how many people would buy me just to read me, but I, I sort of think each title has to stand on its own, so. It's funny, um, every, like all these great actors who always, um, you know, resisted being typecast. Yeah. And yet at the end of the day, I mean, I don't know, I, I remember Peter Lorre as being a great actor because of all of the ways that he played that similar character that he was typecast as. And there's just so many, I guess Peter Lorre is an old example. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, uh, some, some of us would think that, you know, you're lucky to be typecast. Um, if, uh, <laughs> yeah, but I don't want to write any more quirky literary murder mysteries. I'm done killing people off. I think I only kill one person in my new novel. Which oh, is wow. good for me because oh. I usually kill a lot of people. But <laughs> yeah, turn of mind, I only I, I there was was there more than one murder? Am I forgetting something? No, I'm, I'm joking. There was um there was only one murder in that. At least that was at least in the four, you know, in the foreground. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, yeah, some people died, but um there was only one murder. Right. Um, when did you decide you were going to write fiction? Did, was it something that you like, woke up? Did you ever say to yourself, I want to be a writer when you were a kid? Or did it, did, yeah. did it just fall down? Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah, I was always going to be a writer. It was never, never an, any doubt about it. I and just, did anyone uh, ever I try to talk have... you out of it? No, no. People asked me how I was going to earn a living, and I said, "Well, I'll figure it out." Good for no, you. No, I always knew I was I was going to be a writer. Yeah, uh, I, I asked that because you know um, I was pretty young when I knew I wanted to be a writer as well, and um, people were very quick to to point out that you couldn't make a living at it. Um, I just figured I would be one. I would be the exception. <laughs> but, but Mike, Michael, as you and I know, I mean, you can earn a very good living as a writer if you're willing to to write corporate stuff. I mean, it's just not true that you can't earn a living as a writer. You might have trouble earning earning a living as a fiction writer or poet. But people with writing skills shouldn't feel discouraged. There's a lot to be written out there. And there's some people that were willing to pay quite reasonably for it. So I, I, I always argue with that. You can't make a living as a writer. Um, I've done very well at it. And not just the fiction part, the other part too. And yeah, you have I'm, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's funny because one of my first... You know, my first real, real job, um, I was in a small company called Northern Business Information, which everyone thought was a front for the CIA, but it was just a, <laughs> uh, it was, it actually, I think it got acquired by Gartner um, eventually. It was a market research firm in the telecom space. Um, and it was uh, owned by two guys, um, Sean White and Francis McInerney. And um, I remember one time 
having lunch with Francis and he said, you know, growing up and he was from Canada and he said, all my friends, you know, they were going to be writers. Um, and, you know, I was the guy who was like studying economics and got an MBA. And at the end of the day, the only one who's making a living as a writer is me. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and I smiled and nodded from the, you know, sagacity of my 24 year old wisdom. And I thought, ah, you, you know, so-and-so, you're not a writer, you're just some hack. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, I, you know, he was right. And, and, and corporate writing has given me the, you know, frankly, you know, I, I don't have a backbreaking, stultifying job, you know, doing something that's difficult to do physically and tiring and boring. Mm -hmm. I think boring, boredom is the, is the killer, you know, it's like, um, I would way rather have a demanding and interesting job that involves writing. And, you know, people always used to say, oh, you don't want to do writing for your day job, do anything but writing, it'll, you know, because otherwise it'll, I don't know, somehow kill your fiction or make you boring or whatever, which is nonsense. It's like, no, it's whatever nice, sharpens the axe is good anyway. Getting back to your formative years, um, you knew you were going to be a writer. Was there anyone in particular that served as a literary um, influence? I, my life was kind of devoid of mentors until I reached my 20s. And then um, who were some mentors at that age were there any then or were there any then yeah yeah i had a couple oddly enough in my very first job um at infoworld which you know lots of people from infoworld i'm sure um one of my mentors was the editor-in-chief at the time jonathan sachs and people are surprised to hear that because Jonathan and I didn't really get along all that well. <laughs> he did say I didn't approve of Jonathan Sachs, but he was very bright, very talented, very funny man. And he kept promoting me and he gave me what I considered the, the room and the space to earn a living so that I could write. And then he paid for me to go to classes, fiction classes at Stanford, which is we were we were located in Menlo Park at the time. And he didn't have to do that. It had nothing to do with my job at InfoWorld. And he really moved my career as a writer forward, as a professional and as a writer forward in a way that has made me live the life the way I wanted to. And I'm very grateful to him. Um, and then in, when I got to Stanford, I had Nancy Packer, was my mentor who she's just a wonderful woman. She was head of the writing program and has written a writer herself. And she did a lot for me. She meant a lot to me. She means a lot to me. She's still alive. What were for you the most valuable lessons out of um, a writing program? Well, in a, in a writing program, at least when I was a, a Stegner Fellow, um, we focused only on short stories, which I think is really the only way you can really do it in my, my two years there. Nobody 
submitted anything but short stories. I think in other years, people have tried to workshop sections of novels. I don't know how that worked out. And um, I'm not a short story writer. So I'm a novelist, that's clear. And that was clear to me back then too. So for me, it was just the discipline to keep going, despite the fact that I knew I was not gonna be successful with my short stories. There'd be good writing within them, but the stories themselves were not gonna be successful. And um, so that discipline, I think, helped me a lot. And of course you meet, you meet people in these programs that become dear friends and, and helpers and supporters on your journey. So that was also a big part of that. Um, I, so you knew from very early on you wanted to be a writer. If you hadn't wanted to be a writer or if you hadn't been able to be a writer, what would, what would your dream vocation have been? What would you have loved to have been? Cello player. Really? Yeah, I am a cellist. And if I hadn't gone into writing, I would have. I did play professionally for a little bit while I was in college. I played in the Illinois Opera Orchestra, which was in Champaign, Illinois, and put on really good operas. And I was in the union and I got paid. And, um, and then I played professionally a little bit around Chicago when I, after I graduated for church gigs and stuff like that. But mostly um, I gave it up when I started writing. Um, I mean, that's, that, 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 that's wonderful and, uh, um, and really uplifting, you know, it's like. Um, yeah, that's another thing I don't have time for. <laughs> and, and the last question, I, I always ask this, because um, what's your physical relationship to books like? I mean, do you dog ear? Do you write in the margins? Do you smell the books when they come in the door what, what how do you or or, or or do you like stay away from books i mean do you like treat them like holy objects or how, how what do you what's your reaction to books hmm. well um since i live abroad and there is an english bookstore here on the island but it takes a long time if she doesn't have it in stock to order the latest books i'm just for expedience sake i just get kindle or whatever um you know, ebooks. Because um, I'm, I'm up in the middle of the night and I, I read a review and I think I got to have that. And I, I got it then right there. So I've never had a, a relationship to books so much. I don't micron them, I don't treat them particularly well. Mm. Uh, I read them and then I reread them. If I like them, I keep them on my shelves and I reread and reread and reread. So there's books I know by heart. Um, but I don't have a relationship with the actual book itself, if that's what you're asking. Alice LaPlante, I can't thank you enough for having been on my podcast. Thanks again. You've been listening to But I Digress, a podcast about writing, not writing, and everything in between. I'm your host, Michael Hickens. If you like what you just heard, want to find more episodes, or want to know more about me, visit my website at michaelmissing.com.